David, Fred Tomaselli. Um, Visionary artist, interesting use of materials that are surprising for representation. I thought of Radon. Um, I, th I wasn't engaged by it. I thought it was an interesting concept of how to represent with these non-standard materials. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, you said you were or not too engaged by them? I was not engaged by them. Not so. engaged by them. Oh, Linda? I, I... Well, I must say, while we, I was just looking at the slides, I was struck by how much more jewel-like they are in reproduction than they seem to me in life, and how much more depth they seem to have in the reproduction than they do when I'm standing in front of them. I'm not quite as dazzled by Fred Tomaselli as I was the first time I saw his work, because I guess I've gotten used to it, although that last image that we saw, um, I've forgotten what it's called. The, the Terminator? Hangover, how did hangover, I forget hangover. that? Uh, uh, Hangover, I love that one. It was my favorite one in the show. It was maybe because it was the first thing I saw when I came in the door, but I, 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 I really looked at it quite carefully and for a long time because I seemed to be drawn to it. it. It was the one image that didn't... Can we put it up again? Can I look at it again? Uh, yeah, you, sure, why not? Absolutely. For a second. It, yeah, it, it's the, it, it was the one image in the show. I just wanted to get a reality check. It was the, the one image in the show that didn't have birds or humans uh -huh. in it. Uh, I mean, not well, informed. They are buried in there. But, uh, and I, in a way, it seems simpler to me, and I suppose as a matter of personal taste, I prefer simpler things, although I just find this whole painting rather dazzling. And uh, the technique, you know, the leaves and the pills and the resins, and but I, I was interested that he he seemed to be doing more painting, actually. The, the slightly a, discouraging a, thing for the yeah. artist and his fan base in your verdict is that the work you like is the oldest in the show. So the the, the birds and the new heads <laughs> seem to be a departure. I mean, this is a redux. The the jewelry. Well, I suppose I, I suppose that maybe I, maybe it is a, a habit <laughs> to oh. use the appropriate word for his work. Um, there are a lot of drugs buried in his paintings, um, and uh, psychedelic drugs and others. Uh, I don't know. I like the birds, but it, it just all the layering of, of fo the photo montage or collage of little eyes and feathers and leaves and all of that, it just pointed, underscored the technique and the mechanics of the painting more than I think this one did. It was distracting to me, even though I could, like David, appreciate it more than I felt drawn to it. But I did like this one, and the, the one right before, just the bird's head also, I liked a lot. Yes. So Martha, do you, do you find that um, being dazzled by the technique just detracts from an appreciation of, of the image or the, the totality of the work or not? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I think this work is really long on craft and, and very short on, on everything else. Um, I, I, I think for, he's obviously got a sort of trademark uh, thing and you know and the drugs being embedded in his work and, and how to get away from that I think at this point it, it probably it almost feels as if it's impossible for him to get away you know away from that and so instead of sort of some of the work is, is very like this these works and the ones with the birds really are 
you know, rather beautiful, and, and they remind me, if anything, of, of, for instance, Renaissance tapestries, and, and it would be sort of interesting to be, you know, exhibited alongside those, which of course will never happen. But um, oh, how do you say, of course? Maybe in two hundred years' time, the Met is bound to have an a historical hang with Domicelli and the ever. Renaissance tapestries. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, but the trying to use the drugs as a sort of springboard. To, the, the ones that I just when I went in the gallery and in that little side room with the uh, kind of psychedelic figural ones, I just um, I, I, I I really had a problem with those. So I thought they were kind of. Um, you know, to quote myself already, which is bad, but uh, a kind of reefer madness type of image that um, I, I was really um, kind of disappointed with. But again, it's it's really sort of stunning craftsmanship, but I'm not sure if, uh, you know, that, that carries me far enough. I, it's, I, it's funny for me the way craftsmanship, craftspersonship has become such an obstacle. Um, for, for centuries and centuries, um, Fine technique and great art just went hand in hand. You demanded and expected the one in order to have the other. Uh, the 19th century sense of uh, bravura and uh, uh, presto and, and, uh, and sort of led into the 20th century veneration for the spontaneous and uh, the informal to such an extent that I think we're uh, sort of incapable of just trying to get back, uh, allow the pendulum to swing back to a more normative position in which we can just say, okay, it's the temperament of this particular artist uh -huh. to be very nutty and invested in craft. Okay, we, we accept that. It's neither a plus nor a minus. We just need to sort of move forward. I, I feel that um, with Tomaselli, that he's somebody who's um, using the obsessiveness of the way the thing has come into being as a means of engendering in the viewer a sense of kind of nuttiness and basically getting a trip out of us. It's a way of tri tripping us into a trip-like experience of just sort of mesmerizing the eye and the imagination by the, the overload of information, the excess of effort, the layering. Um, but I wonder that, David, if the thing is that the images themselves aren't so engaging. I mean, mm -hmm. we got this interesting process, and I understand that concept. When I made notes about it, I thought it reminded me, I'd seen in Beijing, a woman who was making landscape paintings with ink by finger painting. Mm. She was doing this. Or think of in Italy where you have the marbles that are cut or fake marble that's mm. painted. When we have all these ways of making you know, representation in non-standard ways, and that's always sort of interesting, but it's only a device if the representation then isn't itself. But I mean, this one you see we have on the screen, I said, well, it's sort of banal representation just in itself, and it's true that we step up and we say, well, look what it's made of, and you sort of step forward. It's a kind of pill pontalism, you know, that you come forward and you say, look, we got all these little things, and you step back. But I mean, that, that in itself, that's a kind of skill that may not be engaging. Yeah. I mean, I always think of it, uh, this type of work also, you know, if you go to a state fair, you see an incredible amount of craftsmanship, but um, this is, you know, theoretically a different arena, so it's... Yes, but then theoretically, I mean, if you go to, the, to, uh, to, to Prague or Vienna, you'll, you'll see the work of Archimboldo, and that's within the, the, the canon of uh, fine art. I mean, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. And, um, and, and there one is dealing with a skill-laden conceit. Linda, do you think this is a, a, just a banal image? Do you accept uh, David on that? I, I, I rather think that the, the outside image, as it were, the, the, 
the signifier the, the, is, is of something uh, quite schematic. Yes, it's just a bird with, in quotes, and it's not a lovingly rendered individualized bird. But um, I think it's, it becomes the vehicle for something extraordinary in the way there's this, the, the, the accumulation of little birds making up the big bird. It's not just a, a, a cute craft technique to me. I, I think it, it's a signifier of something potentially more profound, DNA. I don't see anything really profound in it. I don't know what the birds represents to Fred. Uh, it's, I, I don't know. I, I really have problems getting any kind of even conceptual uh, meaning out of this. Uh, I don't relate. I mean, lots of art, you know, birds are, how many artists use birds to represent one thing or another or poets or, yeah, uh, you know, it, yes, yes. it's, uh, but I, I don't know where he's going with this other than the sheer decorative yeah. of it. Uh, birds are about plumage and that yes. kind of beauty and I, you know he's playing on that. Well they're about flight and these well, are about... Yes but this isn't a bird in flight. Uh, but this is a, an artist in a sense of hopefully in a sense of flight. I think this is an artist who's come down from a big trip and wants to take us on a little trip as some kind of souvenir of that big trip and a bird is a signifier of fancy and flight and whimsy and... Um, I think, I think this is not art which is really asking us to uh, engage with the quote-unquote image. It's the experience of the facture and, and how that registers with a, a kind of optical effect. I think it's, it's art that's asking to be looked at abstractly and or conceptually, not figuratively. Um, I think that we were supposed to get over the um, idiom quickly, aren't we? Well, but he started off... I mean, this is a, a pretty... I mean, he hasn't done a lot of figurative work, has no. he? I mean, this is the, the last thing, show he did. It? Also, you know, it was, so it, it, that's part of what's sort of jarring is to kind of it's hard not to read the figure. I mean, I, you know, I started off sort of thinking of him as kind of like a new, you know, Ross Blechner or Philip Taff or someone yes. in this sort of decorative vein. And now, right. um, you know, the, the other person that I thought of when I was looking at these, it was Wangechi Mutu, who uses all these little cut-up things, but there's, there's, there's something else going on. There's a reason that she's using cut-off, you know, little lips or eyes or things like that. This is just a sort of sheer accretion of cut-up things that I, I don't, I'm like Linda, I'm not really sure what to do with it beyond that. But David, would, wouldn't you say that in a way, for better or worse, he's very typical of a genera whole generation of artists, especially coming out of Brooklyn, for whom this very... <laughs> what the hell's so funny about Brooklyn? I, if, I said, if I said Paris, you'd say, oh, Paris. And I say Brooklyn, you all start laughing. Come on. <laughs> no, but there's that kind of whole, what I call the Brooklyn school of fuss and fiddle. There's a whole bunch of artists who are very, very intense craft um, labor, but it's, it builds up to something kind of psychedelic and trippy. But I don't know, is it psychedelic? I mean, I'm sorry, it's like we're trying to talk ourselves into the kind of visionary side, and I'm thinking it's kind of static, it's sort of straightforward, it's something you could find in an ordinary advertisement. I mean, in high times. Staying near Times Square, and those things are more zappy. I mean, it's. But this was always the problem with art to get you high. I mean, you know, Huxley in the Doors of Perception, I mean, he, he would look at everything, and poof, it pushed him up. I mean, so the, the kind of high connection is a tricky one to play. You see, if you want to talk about the point of 
of skill. I mean, think of, oh, you know, those Chuck closes when you get close and it's just a bunch of marks and you step mm. back and the figure pops in. Uh, that seems to me quite exciting and quite interesting to move. Whereas in these, when I stood up, I said, all right, they're pills, and I stand back and I said, okay. But I mean, it was just okay. And I didn't, okay. it didn't, the ecstasy, mm. uh, you know, he talks, I mean, in the gallery account about he wants a utopia and so forth, but I didn't, I mean, this felt to me like a phrase that was not hooked into Sorry. what I was seeing. Right. I know, yeah. I know that Fred lives in Brooklyn, but didn't he come out of California? <laughs> Surf uh, culture? Uh, well, that's, that's uh, I, I guess, yeah, yeah, he did. I, that, that would it was that whole waxing of the surfboard thing with the ah, resin on the, right. uh, on the surface of that's the painting. Good, that's a good lead. I yeah, believe that, that he has far more to do with, uh, what's his name, John McCracken, uh, than he does with... Uh, Archimbaljo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a good mix of the two. But I, the reason I mentioned Brooklyn is because of the whole uh, you know, pierogi phenomenon, which, uh, and, and say James uh, Siena, I think, also connects interestingly to his work. And, uh, uh, and indeed, other artists in this room connect to him uh, uh, Bruce Pearson and uh, Barbara Takanega. I just throw that out, just, just saying that he's not an isolated phenomenon, and that I think if we were able to come to terms with. Um, his aesthetic that we might be in harmony with quite a number of other artists. But if he falls short, as he does for my peers, then we should really just move on. So what do we make of Sarah <laughs> Morris, uh, Martha? <laughs> Martha. Um, I like Fred. I just, it's, I don't think it's that deep. I don't want to okay. no, no. cast dispersions. No, no, fine, fine. <laughs> no, we, 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 I think the audience has a a measure of what each person feels and thinks, and there's no livid hatred of the artist, but there's no, uh, there's no, ex there's no agony, there's no ecstasy with the agony or whatever. So let's, uh, let's, let's move on to, um, uh, we may as well, as we have uh, this, the best resolution and biggest JPEG I could find, thanks to the Public Art Fund. Who have taken... Can I ask a question? Is that work, or how is that? Well, we'll engage with the uh, facture, which we did fail to do with Thomas Ali, but we will engage with the facture when we look at uh, uh, Sarah Morris. Uh, Martha, um, answer the lady's qu question, how is it made, and did, did, the, did the notion of how it was made um, correspond with your appreciation of the experience? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how specific you mean in terms of how it was made. I mean, I well, think it was. Well, sounds like the lady didn't visit the place, so oh, uh, I think I, it's it's, paint, it's painted a painted right. ceiling. I, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I read somewhere that sign painters or you know, I mean, it was you know some sort of professional, you know, the artist wasn't there doing it. Um, at any rate, um, I thought this was a, a, actually a, one of the better works that I've seen of Sarah Morris. I'm, in terms of her paintings, she always, um, you know, if you're familiar with her work, you know, she um, likes to include a lot of discourse along with the um, paintings and, and films that she makes. And um, I've always had a, a pretty big problem trying to connect her uh, paintings. Usually they're these big sort of geometric, abstract, um, very decorative, again, paintings in a very different way um, that she says are essentially about architecture, and I've always had a, a, a pretty hard time making that connection, particularly in the way that she <laughs> describes it, um, unless you were just 
talking about sort of architectural looking. At any rate, this actually is architectural. So, um, and and I think it looks you know quite looks quite nice. You know, you've got that on top, and you've got the um, Solowit on the second floor that you can admire as well. Um, but again, my problem with this artist is that her discourse always sort of gets in the way. And so the title of the work is Robert Town, who is a filmmaker that she's trying to make this kind of connection that the intersections of the lines are about the intersections of power in urban uh, landscapes, in filmmaking, because he was, I'm not, I can't remember if he was, a, well, he was a director, he was a director and a producer and a screenwriter. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that you can go to this, or at least when I went and visited this, I, I enjoyed the work and I, I did like the way that, you know, just in a sort of visual sense, it moved from the courtyard into the building. Um, and then trying to wrap my mind around the, um, the title and sort of, um, you know, um, that sort of stopped me. And it's been a kind of problem. But just visually, I like the work. Uh, Linda, were you able to make a happier connection between the uh, potentially rather pretentious, but at least high-minded uh, high kind of uh, inten stated intentions of the artist with the experience? Or would you inclined to ignore the intentions and simply enjoy the decor? I ignored the intentions uh, of the <laughs> artists. Uh, I, I, I really like, I, I, I feel like Martha, I, I, uh, I, I don't really, uh, I've seen the films I can appreciate a little more than her painting uh, generally, uh, which to me is okay, so what? Uh, but here it really works. And it oddly lowered the ceiling of the building. I mean, it changed the architecture and the experience of the architecture in an interesting way. And I, I, I wish they would keep it permanent. But when I walked through it, I'd forgotten what the title was. And then I came around to the column where there's a card that gives the title and the name of the artist. And I saw Robert Town. And Robert Town happens to be one of my favorite, one of my heroes, actually, as a screenwriter. And so that... Uh, made me stop and think, and now I had to stop and think about what the connection was between Robert Town and what I was looking at, and then, of course, I had to think of everything I, else I've ever seen of Sarah Morris's, and I know that her paintings do relate to urban architecture, and as Martha said, this sort of intersection of power and people uh, uh, walking or within it or trying to grab it and, uh, or negotiate their way along the paths of it. And uh, it's uh, whatever it is for her, that's fine. If, you know, I mean, I don't tell everybody what's behind everything I write. They just take from it what they get. And I don't really want to know everything that goes into the uh, conception of a, or a composition of a painting or a story or a movie. Uh, I want some of that experience to be left to me. So it, for what, whatever else it represents in this case, because it's become part of the architecture and it's not just a painting, uh, I think I can only experience it as somebody walking through the architecture, and that's as a kind of emotional, visual experience, perceptual yeah. experience. David, you're, you're yeah. a writer who's actually devoted quite a lot of attention to the re-emergence of abstract painting in the 1980s, and you were particularly interested in painters uh, as diverse, perhaps, as Sean Scully and Thomas Noskowski, who made abstract painting but had a kind of personal investment in it. So I, I put the question to you, and it's arisen from what right. Martha and Linda are saying. Um, 
are we are we licensed? Are we really at liberty to just go to leave a house, look at the ceiling, and have a kind of Ellsworth Kelly or Al Held type experience with the ceiling, or are we in some way obligated to try to engage with the conceptual agenda that the artist proposes? Okay. I mean, the space is so dull and deadly, and I mean, she's done something to it, and it, it you know really improves it. And I mean, part of the thing I think you know that's hard to see on these couple of slides is that. Some of the painting is on the outside part, on the ceiling, some is inside, and so you walk into the lobby of the building and you come out and it's connecting all of that around. And that's, I mean, it's taking a really horrid place that feels low and uncomfortable and, you know, corporate in every bad sense, and it's, it's really improving it. But, you see, ah, David, I mean, your question, because just a quote from the brochure, I mean, this title is hopeless, because Robert Town, I mean, his works are marked by, I'm quoting the account, moral ambivalence, realistic dialogue, and ruthless dissection of cruel or corrupt systems of social authority. But what that has to do with getting permission to paint the ceiling, after all, where you got to get the permission of the owners of the building. I mean, you know, I, don't, I don't know. And the other part of it, you see, when you look at it again, the whole thing is a composition. Well, she's interested in Venn diagrams and so on, and power. And that part of it, I confess, you know, I wasn't sort of getting. I thought she was taking a deadly space and she was adding something to it, but uh, in a sense it's, it's part of it. It improves the corporate space. I, I didn't think that there was any kind of further meaning as communicated. I mean, the, the Robert Town is the, I'm just quoting him, he was involved with the movies Chinatown, Shampoo, and Personal Best, but it would be quite a jump to walk through this because I happen to have re-seen shampoo recently. So, oh yeah, it, you know, I mean, I think of shampoo again and this is the young Warren Beatty. I mean, that seems to me a real leap. I don't see that that has any obvious thing to do with what we're seeing here. Am, am I missing? I, I, I was only take issue with you. I think Lever House is an architectural masterpiece. I think it's a, a, a wonderful building. And um, uh, sure, I, I agree that she's cheered, cheered up the, uh, yeah. the, the low ceiling there a little bit. Uh, I don't think Damien Hurst's dissected um, uh, mother there is, to, is doing much to cheer up the space. I mean, the sooner he gets rid of that, the better. But um, um, no, I, I think she's very savvy, very canny, because it's perfect, perfect painting for that building. It's, mm. And she is kind of very much part of a neo-conceptual wave of other artists who um, are having fun with the sort of decor of the 60s and 70s, bringing it up to date, um, trading in on a, a, a sense. Think of Damien Hurst's dot paintings or uh, uh, think of uh, uh, Fiona Ray's uh, stripes. Um, it's, it's a very clever sort of reviving a kind of a, a dumb aesthetic from the 60s and giving and, and sort of presenting it as being chic uh, by giving it some kind of intellectual underpinning that's almost making a mockery of conceptual art because um, I don't think there's any way in which she can really expect us to take her seriously in her stated intentions. I, I think she's um, playing with the sensation of big ideas that came from the conceptual art of the 60s, just as she's playing with the cool, sleek, abstract forms of the 1960s. It's a sort of riff on the 60s, the 70s. It's a riff on uh, modernism. Do you have, does anybody, I didn't see the brochure there, but 
Was, did she choose the site, or did somebody else? Oh, the okay. public art fund. The, the site, the building is owned by this. Uh, no, Amy Rosen, I know. Yeah, yeah. 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 And he. Uh, uh, the story is this. Apparently, um, well, the first thing to uh, to make clear is that Lever House is a venue for an ongoing series of temporary projects organized by the Public Art Fund, which is this very dynamic body that brings uh, with it artists to do temporary things in, don't laugh, Brooklyn and New York. Uh, but the other thing is that apparently she was uh, a little tipsy and me- drinking with some friends in the Seagram building and saying, God, I'd really like to do something here. And that was the genesis of her project at Lever House. So she chose the site. No, uh, Public Art Fund chose her to be in the site, and she said, yes, that makes sense to me personally, because I already had a fantasy of doing something over the road in the Seagram building. So half one and six and other, yeah, half and half. No, so. But you, just, this comment on the 60s in that way, I don't know if anyone else sees it, this kind of irony or something. I don't know. I mean, I thought, the first thought I had was Louette, and, you know, I mean, this is kind of, she's subdividing... But I didn't have, walking around it, I didn't have any clear sense of, you know, why these particular subdivisions, why these colors. I thought, in that sense, it was, it was decorative. I mean, in a good sense. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't see any criticality. I did, the other thing about public work is, of course, you want to ask around. And my sense is, well, maybe the guy at the desk liked it. I mean, you know, it has certain popularity. It's relatively low-key in some ways. But the mm-hmm. criticality, I, just, I don't know... I don't see that at all. I don't. Well, you know, I mean, Martha, you are going to see. That. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's critical either. Yeah. Really, I, I. I think that um, it is that sort of um, idea of you know to a certain extent sort of recycling that aesthetic and and um, you know that maybe it's a little I don't know cynical in a sense, but. Um, you know, and again, I mean, she's been making these paintings for, for quite a while, and, mm-hmm. and you know, these, this is just an extension of that, and I think a much more successful ex- ex- extension. But um, I, I, I don't really see the irony, do you? Well, the irony I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm suggesting is that it's, it's part of that neoconceptual thing of, of having your cake and eating it. On the one hand, trading in the popular, accessible, nice graphic design solution of, of recycling uh, the look of modernism, utopian modernism, or critical modernism any time from the 60s through, 50s through the 70s. On the other hand, it's um, seeming to have a really clever and important agenda that's about deconstructing the world, uh, which she sort of promotes through the literature and, uh, that comes with the work, but that I'm very strongly inclined to just ignore and go along with the rest of you. It's, it's great decor. The other thing that threw me about the title was Robert Town, who I so connect to Los Angeles and Hollywood, mm-hmm. and Lever House being such a fixture of New York, you know, and identified yeah, with the city. I, I that I didn't know what yeah. I didn't know how to take that. You know, I think there's a painting called uh, Robert Town, parentheses Los Angeles, which throw is further. Is this com- the painting? Well, uh, yeah, kind of. This is the painting turned upside down or 90 degrees and put on the ceiling, kind of. I'm sure she adapted to the space. I feel there's a sort of very strong consensus on the panel. We all enjoyed the ceiling and we all uh, took less pleasure from the press release. But that's the the order one wants. That is the order one wants from a work of art, I think. So uh, uh, it's, it's two thumbs sideways veering up. Um, I have to say that when the day that I went to see it, the Hearst thing, which I 
can't stand personally, uh, uh, was covered in scaffolding. <laughs> they were cleaning it or something. And uh, I guess I imagine the pigeons really go to make hay of that <laughs> piece. But it, it was hidden away, and the scaffolding kind of echoed the structure the painting, of and it yeah. all seemed to go together really well. Excellent. It also looks kind of like those Germans, like shy bits a bit, doesn't it? It does it sort of. Uh, There's also that Torben Geiler who does the same thing. Oh, Geiler, yeah. You know, it's just, it's, a, it's just a number of people doing that. I think she's part of a broad aesthetic. She is. Yes. Okay, this is a good moment to uh, have the audience let off some steam and uh, probe us a little. Uh, both Tomaselli and and Sarah Morris. There's always a tendency when uh, you have two shows and then you bring in the audience that attention is focused on the second show, but I'd be fascinated to hear from some of the artists in the audience who, who might share some of Fred Tomaselli's aesthetics to, to give us their take on the work. Um, yes? Uh, the Fred Tomaselli had the uh, quality of um, making me want to keep looking at it and puzzling about it, and it the interesting thing about it for me was that precisely that it gave no answers. And I kept puzzling. Why did he choose those particular textures? Why did he do them so obsessively? Why did they add up to the images they did? And I kept kind of moving back and forth and kind of asking it questions. And uh, whether for good or for bad, I think that's a very interesting um, achievement when a work uh, can do that. Great, thank you. Uh, next person. Some some more comments. There were, were lots of hands up before. Uh, did that lady say everything you wanted to hear to say? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, the Fred Tomasellis reminded me of the. There's a period of Pompeian frescoes, which are black backgrounds and these beautiful birds and fruit. And nobody's mentioned that, and I wonder if I'm the only one seeing that. It's a very thoughtful, good, good call from my point of view. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I hadn't thought of it. Before. I hadn't thought of that. I, I thought, thought of that. tapestries. But, you know, but they're you know, like mosaics yeah. or a lot of, yeah. They call it like the third period or something. Yeah, so Greek vases. Yeah. Yes. Um, wait for the mic, please. Persian miniatures. I think they're much closer to Persian miniatures than any of the above references. And the way that the image is generalized uh, in large and particularized in small is another kind of quotation from that tradition. Except for the psychedelic face, right? Well, I... <laughs> well, read Rumi. There's I don't lots know. Of, uh, <laughs> lots of room in Rumi for the psychedelic, I think. Well, actually, there are the erotic ones, the uh, Persian miniatures, where the, in part there, there might be a big elephant, and in, the elephant is composed of, you know... Uh, That's what I feel is missing from Fred's paintings, actually. <laughs> the elephant or the erotic? The erotic. Uh-huh. I wonder if there's one elephant. obvious thing here that, I mean, the kind of powerful images we have are all the computer images, and that's what he's competing with, because the, the Pompeian one is a, an esoteric reference, whereas it's going home and looking at your power book, and that's the comparison that seems to me a hard one. I mean, we're used to all kinds of visionary things, just as screensavers, yeah. and he doesn't have that power. Because they're static? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yes, wait for the mic, please, the lady in the front. Well, I just wanted to, I guess, comment on this on the surface that no one seemed to have, you know, mentioned that. That I think that the um, the physicality of that surface adds something to the work. I'm not sure. I mean, and for me personally, sometimes it makes me feel like decoupage furniture, but then in another way, it gives the work itself, you know, like more substance. Oh, I, she mentioned the surfboard. Yeah, so I, think, I do yeah. think it oh. is all about that surface and oh. working the surface. Like, the, as I mentioned, the surfboard where you put the resin and right. the polish oh. and you paint it and embed mm. things in it. And that, to me, that's really the reference. Oh. On the other hand, actually, there's, yeah. there, is a, there is a sort of dialogue, a formal dialogue, I think, going on in the work between uh, the, uh, the buried entities within this kind of gleamy... Uh, faultless surface, which I, where I thought McCracken was a brilliant call, but then the acrylic paint on the surface has a, a physicality and a handmadeness, which in a way pulls us away from the etherealness of the the, the, the gel encased um, pills and leaves and other layers. Um, yeah. I hope I can make myself clear. With the mic, you can. Yes. Okay. Maybe in, <laughs> mentally clear. Um, Tomaselli is considered an artist or he's considered a collagist? And what category do you put him? Because if you view him as an artist, I would say, no, I don't like it. If you view him as a craftsman, then I change my perception of him and say, well, how good is a craftsman? And should he put, be put in that category? And on a scale of 1 to 10, how does he rate? Oh, I wouldn't want to speak for him, but I would have a very strong guess that he'd rather be considered the worst living artist than the best living craftsman. <laughs> Is that well, no, uh, but how the do you audience? guys view him? As, a, as an yeah. artist or a craftsman? Uh, He's I'm, a painter with eccentric materials. Is that it? I mean, And he also predates like... digital photography because he's on the road a little bit toward, in that direction. I feel that uh, you may... Not like Fred Tomaselli, but I don't it, like it him too be, much. No, it would but be, if I it would be sort of gratuitous insult to take an artist who is an working artist, no. in a medium that, for about ninety to a hundred years, has been an accept as as accepted an art material, namely collage, as painting or carving or modelling, and say that because he's using collage, he's a craftsperson and therefore not an artist. I, to me, well, how do you delineate between craftsman and artist then? That's a whole. That's a great subject for an entire evening's debate. <laughs> well, there are. <laughs> but oh, well, I don't. Accept, we, I don't feel that there's that. likely to be a strong consensus that because collage is his medium, we shouldn't think of him as an artist. Um, just a footnote about the resin. Um, when Tomaselli first sort of broke out in the early '90s or so, there were a slew of artists who were entombing their works in resin. At that time, Elsie Armstrong, Chuck Agro, and countless others, so I'm not quite sure whether the sort of surfboard California sheen is uh, as much a part of it as just a sort of New York aesthetic at the time to sort of distance the viewer with that type of surface. Thank you very much. That's Drew Lowenstein, an artist who was, who's there and who knows. And we'll take the lady in the front and then Ellen and then we'll get back to our job. You know, I wonder how important the images are to him because they change the, you know, the tree one and the bird. And they seem a little arbitrary. It seems like he'll choose an image and use that as his starting point to 
then build a very sensuous, overwhelmingly um, exciting image to 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 get you. You know, I, I, I so I'm really curious if he, if the subject matter of the images really matters to him. Okay, and a last comment from Ellen, and then we're going to move on. Well, I followed his work from when he was pretty young and, and working with marijuana leaves in, in beautiful embedded color, etc. I think he's running out of ideas because it seems to me that there's just no focus in this show. The last show was a little more focused. This one is really, uh, I mean, a bird here and a branch there. It's not, I hope that he finds, I think I love his technique and all, but I think he finds uh, a vision. Great. So, well, not great for Fred, but great, as in we're ready to move on. Uh, <laughs> um, how many of us saw the exhibition of Corey Archangel? Uh, uh, well, okay, that's, uh, that's good, or not. Linda, um, I, 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 I bow to the art critic of Bloomberg News, who's whose medium is uh, a channel where one is able to see six or seven streams at once, oh, the, yeah. the NASDAQ at one level and, the, and the, uh, a war here and a nuclear explosion there. And then uh, a, a fifth panel will be Linda Yablonski interviewing Bryce Marden. And I think uh, that's, that's, the, that's the person we need to ask to, to get us our bearings with Corey Archangel, a, a young artist who's taken very seriously in some circles. Should we be taking him... Very seriously. I have to admit that I think I have never been captivated by his work, and I need other people to explain it to me, even though I consider myself quite savvy when it comes to digital manipulations. Uh, to me, this whole show is straining for the obvious. I, I, I just uh, wasn't captivated by any of it. To me, it's, it's like a, a kid staying up late at night playing with his toys and smoking something. And uh, <laughs> this is what came, I mean, I can appreciate the conceptual uh, frame within he, which he puts these things. I felt the same way about earlier work that had, had to do with digital like games like Pac-Man. He, he's a computer hacker. Uh, uh, the the uh, Bruce Springsteen, what what it, it, you put on the earphones and the record plays and you listen to the record and he's taken out the entire album except for the parts where the glockenspiel plays. So you sit there and, well, you're not in total silence because this other video is playing and it's quite loud. Uh, but you, it, it's got, it's mostly a <laughs> blank record that every now and then you hear the glockenspiel. It made me think of which, uh, work that I actually like better that I saw last week at White Columns. I don't know who the artist is, but it was a video of a man playing the uh, drums, was it? A, a drum or a cymbal? Uh, you know, it was a little like the Alfred Hitchcock movie where <laughs> they wait for the, the cymbals to be hit and then somebody gets killed. Uh, this was a video of a man playing the drums, but he was hearing the music through headphones. He was in a recording studio, and so he heard the music, but all you heard was, you know, the drum beat. And uh, it was kind of amusing and wonderful cause, uh, to watch him. Uh, I was much more captivated by that than l sitting in the dark listening to Guns... It's the first few bars of the Guns N' Roses song played over and over again with, I guess, one note dropped out. Uh, 
it, and uh, the image itself repeating over and over again on two channels. Uh, and I, I didn't care. <laughs> well, well, Martha, did, did, did the earth move for you? Um, I wouldn't say the earth moved. I, I do sort of appreciate the idea, well, in the title, you know, recent contri contributions to participatory culture. Um, I, I do, I think he's probably not the right spokesperson for, um, you know, either for hackers. I know he's been really taken to task by, you know, he's not like, you know, an Israeli teenager who can hack into the Pentagon. He's just not that, you know, virtuosic when it comes to hacking. But um, I do think that, um, you know, the idea of, of culture as interactive or participatory, that he's, it, that idea I, I am interested in. And I, I think, you know, in certain respects, it, it, it's, you know, it is an important idea. It's sort of, you know, like pop in the 60s or something. But I agree with Linda. I don't, I don't think, I think he's headed somewhere. I mean, he's put down the video games and he's, that I absolutely you know, agree with. He's, he's discarded yes, the yes, Nintendo yes, and yes, moved yes, on to so, Bruce Springsteen, um, which is a... Uh, but he just hasn't maybe arrived yet. I mean, oh. at his own. Well, give him another 40 years and he'll be listening to Pashelville. Um. Oh, this is wonderful because I was terrified there was all going to be this agreement all the way along and, you know, it, we'd go home early and say there's nothing else to say. I love this. I thought this was great. I thought it was smart and I thought it was funny. And, you know, I mean, it passed. Look, I mean, the simple test is you say, well, can I afford this if I could? Yeah, I take it home. I mean, I thought the one about the dazed and confused. I thought all that dubbing of Indians into this illogic. I mean, I would have sat there, you know, I wanted to drink at some point. I would have sat there and stayed and watched it. I thought the one about the Ed Sullivan and how it's grinding down was interesting. I thought he had a lot of moves, I mean, a lot of different things going on. You know, he's very young, and I thought they were different and interesting. The idea, well, the high, low culture, I mean, you know, we've kind of heard that infinitum. It was just that the experience was fun. I mean, it's, but again, it's just visceral. Do you want to stay or not. I mean, I did talk to the woman in the gallery and I said, well, I bet when you go home after hearing this from 8, 10 in the morning to 6 at night that, what do you want to hear? And well, she said, silence. You know, so after, after 8 hours of Sweet 16, you know, this kind of Philip Glass version, there it is. But I thought this was smart and fun and I, I was one. I, I was impressed by the one where he actually uh, took the film Dazed and Confused and sent it to one of those outsourcing places in India where if you have any problem with your credit card or your uh, computer you, in the middle of the night, you're likely to speak to a gentleman in Bombay uh, or Mumbai. Uh, and he got one of these companies there to, uh, to take the whole screenplay and read it back, but in just basically reading back. So I'm not going to do an imitation of their voices because that's politically incorrect. But you have these uh, uh, Indians reading in a very straight-faced way <laughs> these uh, lines like, gee, man, are we going to get high tonight? And da, da 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 So it's like, gee, man, are we going to get high tonight? But with an Indian accent. And so, uh, uh, you know, the press release then tells us, of course, that this is a uh, sort of decon... This is a, a very important statement about... Uh, the, way, the way in which our culture is outsourced and uh, the third world is exploited and the global village is not a village or whatever. But um, just as a strategy, I thought it was fun uh, or amusing. But as with, you know, this is a guy who's trained in, in avant-garde music and then come into art, the art scene. Uh, it's, it's, the avant-garde music scene is even more, is even smaller 
you'll be pleased to hear there is a scene on, in a, on, on this planet that's smaller than the art world. So, and, and it's the avant-garde music world. And they're, they're just really ossified. I mean, I, I wonder, David, if, it's, if there's even an element of nostalgia for, for one's youth, that, that this, is, this, is the, this is the idealistic kind of zaniness of the 60s and 70s. Um, I mean, it's so much a caricature, isn't it, of conceptual art that might be one idea that might be kind of clever and fun as an idea, and then the torture of having that idea actually played out. Uh, I see. I mean, I agree with you. The idea as well. What are the implications of outsourcing? Well, you know, I mean, it's better to read about that in the newspaper. But yes. it was simply that, as art, I mean, after all, you're standing in the space there. You're not sitting at home reading the paper. That it was simply fun. Now, but that's simply, I you know, it was fun. It was. You know, I, I was compelled. I wanted to hear more and see more, and there it is. You know. Did you think that once you get the idea that the art piece would become richer as the idea elaborates? Or do you think possibly there's a, it's a bit like the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan piece? That once you've got the idea, it's going to just degenerate further. You're not going to get higher. You're going to get lower with that uh, playing, playing back. Well, but you see, I came to this after the Tomaselli, so... It's like life was improving. This was, ah. you know. Linda, do you think there's a possibility of Thomas Selly and, and, and Archangel collaborating? To, no, to I think, <laughs> no, I think they live in two entirely different worlds. I, I actually like the uh, Days and Confused piece the best, I guess, because I spent the most time with it, although I was watching... It's not there right now, but it was. It's. I was watching the Beatles while listening to yeah. the Dazed and Confused because they're both within view when you're in the gallery. Um, and uh, I didn't know which movie I was watching right away. I didn't look at anything in the gallery, so I was. I just listened to it, and I was amused in that you know because I've seen a lot of dubbed movies in my life, and uh, you know if you're in another country and you see an American film that's been dubbed into <coughs> Italian or German or Chinese or whatever it is, and it's kind of odd to watch that way. But it made me think of What's Up, Tiger Lily, uh, which is the Woody Allen movie, that, you know, a Japanese film that he wrote his own script for. It wasn't the actual dialogue the way it was here. Uh, and I just thought, and that was in the 60s, and uh, I just thought, I, it just seemed like the same idea to me, a uh, yeah. similar idea. And uh, didn't really carry it much further, but uh, I, I was amused by it, and it's kind of reverse. And also because I live in New York City, and you hear English spoken in a million different accents, uh, given different inflections, and sometimes different meanings, and the different phrasing, which I can appreciate from a musicologist's point of view, uh, just the sound of it. Uh, but. I guess I, yeah, that was the one I was most drawn to. But I, I've, for years, or not for years, since the first time he had a show, I've been trying, I've been asking other people to explain it to me. Martha, like, did like you have a favorite foggy. piece in the show? Or at least, 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 least favorite? Mm. For me, it was Colors, <laughs> in a way. I, I kinda, I mean, colors is a great-looking work. and It, it looks like the, uh, you, you can know. go to the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, they have right. this whole bank of uh, screens, which seems to do something similar, but in their case, they don't take a, uh, an action movie. They take uh, actual works in the collection and do the same, apply a similar program to it. I mean, Archangel devises a program for each 
of his pieces. It, it looked great out at PS1, and it was in that show. It was in time frame and, and making you think about time and works and, and next to Warhol and the idea of you know, slowing things down. I think one of the things also about this, the way that it felt, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're obviously sort of bubbling with ideas at the moment. And so, you know, you have one work like Colors that looks, you know, like a sort of, um, you know, kind of formalist painting. And then, uh, you know, this sort of moving around uh, between them. And so um, I don't know if I, if I really did. I did actually go rent Days and Confused afterwards because oh. I couldn't really remember it. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, I kind of like to know, you know. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was fun because then I sort of had the, uh, the uh, Indian dialogue in the back of my mind. Yeah, some people will say that the, the, the greatest compliment you can pay to a work of art is it makes, wants to make you go home and paint. So I suppose the, the greatest compliment one, one can pay <laughs> avant-garde music composition is it should make you want to go home and Netflix days and confused. Shall we move on, uh, panel, to our last and probably not least controversial topic, which is the two-part Lisa Yuskavich exhibition to be seen at uh, David Zwerner um, on, in Chelsea. And Zwerner and Werth, Werth, does one Americanize or Germanize the name? Um, up here on 69th Street. Well, it's 30 blocks away, but I feel it's up here. Well, I think I'll kick off on this discussion. I was really, I'm really looking forward to seeing what we're going to make of uh, Lisa Yuskavich in general and her, her latest shows in particular, because I know that this panel includes uh, uh, a critic who's uh, uh, put her enthusiasm behind... Uh, Yuskavich's work, and it includes myself, who's, who's on record as being very, very dismissive of the artist. I once uh, took task with Roberta Smith for talking about, for, for, for citing uh, Georges de la Tour as a painterly precedent for Yuskavich's achievement, and said that to me she had at best the kind of uh, nerdish competence that high school students admire in their peers. Um, well, you know, the great pleasure of being a critic is to sometimes feel that you may have been wrong and to also have the sensation that somebody you've deprecated has improved. And so, like the prodigal son, the, the father and son meet each other halfway. Um, and to cite another biblical metaphor, well, I wasn't... I, it's, not, it's not that I was blinded on the road to Damascus so much as that there were a few, there were a few moments when I needed to put on my sunglasses. In other words, I'm a, I'm a sometime deprecator who who's, who's feels that he's never had such a good experience with Lisa Yuskavich. Um, Linda, where do, you, where do you stand in, in relation to Yuskavich in general and, and this show in particular? Well... I have to say, Lisa Yuskavich, I believe, is the way she says her name. Uh, it, it's always, she's always intrigued me, always troubled me. Um, I, I, it's partly because I know her pretty well, so I, and, uh, it's, and yet I, I've not talked to her very much about her work. I mean, I liked it right away early on. I even tried to buy a painting of hers, uh, a tiny one that by the time I really got around to paying for it, it had gotten too expensive, so I, I don't own it. But it wasn't a typical painting of hers. I think her light is beautiful. I think she, 
Um, I think she's a formalist, really, uh, and it's hard to get past the content of the work to see what else is going on in it, but there's a lot more there. And of these two shows, I found uh, there, there are a couple of paintings in the downtown show that I really liked. They're, they're bodies growing out of the landscape and out of each other that I thought were terrific. I, I, I started to fixate on uh, uh, details in the landscapes rather than the figures uh, in them. And I, and I started to become absorbed in these landscapes. Um, this painting called Ledge in particular where the two bodies are growing out of a rock ledge and out of each other that makes me think it's really two sides of one body and that they're all part of this whole fantasy world and inner world, I'll say not a fantasy world because I think almost all of her painting is really about the way women regard themselves and uh, and the kind of inner life uh, and uh, self-doubt and pride all uh, and pleasure all wrapped into one. Of the two shows, I prefer... The Uptown show I thought was fabulous, actually. I'm in small scale... Something happened to the same images. Uh, they were the surfaces aren't look less. I mean, they look less airbrushed. They're painted differently. They're a little more expressionistic. They seem more personal, but on the smaller scale, they. I really started to concentrate on them in a, in a way that I didn't in the larger paintings, and uh, I thought they were. It was so interesting to me the difference that the scale made and the, uh, having those small paintings with the drawings, which I also the watercolors are. I also liked a lot, so I had a. Uh, I didn't get a chance to go back to the downtown show again after seeing the uptown one, which I did on different days. And uh, but I found it very. I've been thinking about it ever since. You know the the disparity of the experience. Okay, yeah. um, um, uh, Martha, um, did you find that this these. I'll treat them as one show, really. Did you find this this new show um, was uh, uh, more of the same with you, Scarvage? Did you find that it was uh, uh, an epiphany, or did you find that you, a disappointment? Um, the first part, I did not think it was more of the same. I agree with Linda on a lot of points there. Um, um, not necessarily an epiphany and not a disappointment. Um, but um, I, I think that uh, she's, I don't remember the word you used exactly, but in terms of being difficult, she is a very difficult artist. And, um, but I think she really, um, I hate to draw the, you know, drag this person out, she's always compared to John Curran. I think she's a much more interesting painter than John Curran. And, um, and problematic in her own way, but so much more interesting. It's a very different thing for uh, a male painter, I think, to decide that you know breasts are going to be his sort of um, big innovative move. Whereas she is uh, so interesting, I think, in the way that she's dealing with the body, with colors, um, and I think, in a sense, and this is you know, I, I kind of hate to even say this because she's not. Um, or paints herself more, as, as Linda said, almost more of a, as a formalist rather than um, a kind of theoretician. But I think that she's probably one of the best examples of something that you might want to call post-feminism, 
um, just in the sense that she absorbs a lot of things that you know the first go round, say second wave feminism left out. For instance, you know, pink and you know romantic things and um, wanting somehow to be beautiful and um, pornography, of course, which is what she was always cited for in the beginning. Oh, that's that woman who paints from Penthouse magazine, um, and she's sort of you know to a certain extent. Um, moved away from that or even tried to distance herself from that. But, you know, here, of course, there's an awful lot of, you know, this sort of girl-on-girl -girl kind of thing. And then the question is whether uh, that's for, um, you know, who your audience is and what sort of titillation. Um, and the way that she kind of absorbs, uh, you know, whether it's Balthus or Margaret Keene or, um, you know, I, I was even thinking sort of based on also what Linda was saying about some sort of breakdown of bodies, almost like Hans Belmer or something. And yeah. she's really doing some just interesting thing. But one of the one of the things that I do like best about it is that it's, com it's complicated. And this is where, as a critic, um, you, you know, I, I commend David. I was reading your um, review from 2003, and, and you definitely put yourself out there. And then, again, did this sort of... Um, you know, um, I don't know if you'd call it a correction or re-evaluation you know, re today, but I think that says something about an artist who makes you that, um, you know, not sure where you fall. It's easy to come and, you know, to say, oh, I hate this or I love it, but yes. she's a very difficult painter, and I think that's probably your best strength. Well, David, the reason I feel I've had a little bit of a, a need to correct is not that I've, it's not that the scales have fallen away from my eyes and I've seen I was wrong three years ago, is that, as I say, we're meeting halfway, that uh, there's, a, there's a definite softening of the image. Uh, there's, uh, she's bored, as Linda has implied, by her own sort of reliance on pornography. I think that there's a, um, there's a, there's a, a humanism and a tenderness in this work, which is still uh, more than uh, uh, encased by a, a great deal of uh, uh, banality and schlock tactic. But um, it's not that I'm saying, oh, well done, Lisa. I'll give you another 15 years and you'll be painting <laughs> Raphael Sawyer's. It's that, um, it's that there's an ambiguity now, whereas there was a blatancy before. But David, David, tell us, uh, tell us what you make of Lisa Yaskovich. To quote you, don't get me wrong, these are still silly, silly pictures. I mean, yeah, <laughs> Well, this is fascinating. I mean, I was irritated. I was annoyed. I thought, well, it's got this kind of idea. It's only an idea. She's playing the content and all the feminist lines and such. But I mean, she reminds me of a friend of mine who, you know, I find constantly, frequently irritating, and yet this call, this person X, and yet I, I want to see her again, I want to talk. I mean, there's something about someone who gets under your skin, and I, I mean, I wanted to sort of wash her out of my head. I tried going to the Frick and looking at Chimibui, maybe that was the wrong place. I mean, it's, it's really, in that sense, the issues are really interesting, and I think, you see, what I like now is in the panel, that that's playing out here. I think the things about gender are really interesting. I think, uh, you see, disagreements are surfacing. I, because I would disagree with the idea that we do a kind of connoisseurship about which of her works are better. Worse, it seems to me, you kind of take this body of art and do you like it or not. I, I mean, one thing I would mention, and I, we haven't said this earlier, is that we're seeing the slides abstracted from the situation, but she, after all, is in very upscale galleries now, and that's, I think that setting comes in, because when you see these in Zern and Wirth, I mean, this is really this townhouse effect, and that you evaluate it differently than when you're seeing you know, someone younger in a more professional space. 
I didn't like it. I was irritated. I was frustrated. I mean, I could sort of write a long essay on it because it poses all these great issues. She's playing the, the content against the form and what do we care about painting and what about the gaze and so forth. But there it is. I mean, she gives us something to talk about and that's, that's a gift. So in that sense, the disagreement is a wonderful thing here. I mean, I still find her totally frustrating, but interesting. Linda, do you accept, as David asserts, that she's an artist that we have to take as a package deal? Or do you, would, you, would you resist that and say, if one can be connoisseurial in one's approach to Matisse or Chardin, one should be as well in relation to Yuskavich? Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't know really what you meant by that, actually. That well, it all is this she one got body work. better or are some works better than others in the series? I mean, so that, for example, Uptown, you've got the big drawings and the smaller paintings and really small paintings in that back room and then the paintings sort of get bigger. See, from my point of view, whether some are sort of better works of art in the way that some Fragonards are better than others is sort of irrelevant because what I think is going on with her is a kind of, I don't want to put it, this is conceptual visual art. That is, she's playing with the sort of dilemmas about the subjects and the technique rather than are some better painting paintings than others. Well, why would she need to paint more than one, then? <laughs> uh, Linda, but I, I'm, I'm not uh, going along with David, and I wondered if you backed me up. I think that one has to be, if one is a connoisseur, well, there's no reason why you should be any less connoisseurial in relation to Cory Archangel than in relation to Giotto. Yeah, I guess I agree with you, although I'm not... Uh, yeah, I mean, I love that she's irritating. Uh, you know, I think yeah. it's uh, it, you. I feel very ambivalent myself, and I think that's really interesting. You know, and I keep coming back to the work. There is some that you mentioned the word tenderness, and that was what was in the little painting that I tried yes. to buy. Uh, and right. and I think it's been there all along, but it's not in every painting. It is more in the drawings. I mean, in the smaller works, perhaps. Uh, uh, they're a little, you know, the large ones, they're not the least bit sexy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've heard some people because they're two female figures and they're entwined and they're mostly nude, that they're lesbian pictures. I don't take them that way because there is no erotic charge there, really. And uh, it, to me, it was more mother-daughter or sister, some other kind of relationship or to self, as I said. You know, the, the, the little... The, the, child inside, horrible phrase. Uh, um, um, the colors bother me, the, you know, the yeah. obviousness of the pregnant belly and the fruit, I mean, you know, that, that yeah, It's not a profound metaphor, is it? No. But, but, but Martha, um, um, I think the scale issue is rather crucial, and I would really want yeah. to hear what you have to say about it, because um, it seems that there, there's a jouissance in the small panels. That's what really kind of got me worried or excited, is that this artist for whom paint was this kind of um, completely lethargic thing that one almost, in, in the earlier work, one had a sense that it was like painting out of a how-to manual. It was quote-unquote old master technique, but never with any of the energy of old master paintings. In some of those smaller paintings, there was this real kind of rococo whimsiness of ju juiciness of the paint. And... Um, uh, what 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 is it? What's going on with scale? Is is she is she just elaborating an idea in the smallest? Do you think the smaller works are the powerhouse for the larger works, or do you think they're souvenirs after the event? Well, there's a big market out there for it, but um, 
I do agree. I think that the larger ones were actually a little bit more static, and the smaller ones um, almost as if you know, well, they're you know a little bit more like sketches. And um, I, you know, I, I think that um, one thing I wanted to tack on, which has nothing to do with your question, is yes. uh, the fact that a lot of the women look like her. I mean, that's you know, that's uh -huh. when you go in and sort of confront the artist there. The turned up nose it? and the sort of white uh, Just a, a, you know, vaguely. But, um, so that's, that's just an, another thing um, but, that I was thinking of. But um, the scale, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like that thing. And the Frick is a perfect example because they always say that with John Curran too. And this is something, I mean, particularly mm -hmm. if you've studied art history or you've taught art history, and this is always the, the argument. I mean, are these painters, you know, anywhere in the... Um, you know, in in the ballpark of the old masters, and I, you know, it's just it's just a different world. I mean, these people, you know, they're not apprenticing from the age of eight years old, and they're not supposed to be. Um, and you know, you go to, um, you know, any sort of large survey museum, and you start drilling down, and you see everyone could paint. You know, I mean, you know, not just um, you know Goldthus or Durer, or, you know, all these people back then could, you know, just had extraordinary skill. So for me, that's a little bit of a, I don't even really know how to, to approach that, whether these painters are good painters or sort of good painters or extraordinary painters. It's just a, a, a different sort of issue. Um, and so I don't, I don't know, but in terms of, and it does get down very much to connoisseurship, but um, yeah, the, the little paintings were very, you know, sort of fresh and, mm. you know, I don't know. Maybe it was just seeing it at a different size. Okay. Wow. Great. Look, I think now's a very good time to, to bring in some of the audience, because I can't imagine that Yuskavage is not an artist that uh, lots of people have something to say about. But once again, I remind you, please do wait for the mic so that in 300 years' time, when there's uh, uh, a Yuskavage, Yuskavage, retrospective at the Met, we can uh, <laughs> hear what you had to say in 2006. <laughs> yes. Uh, where do I see the first hand? Yes, uh, Ken Cooley. Thanks. Well, I was wondering, I, I just saw the show uptown, but the color to me seems so synthetic, and I, I kind of assume this was meant as a kind of parody of, of representation. I was wondering if anyone else thought that. I actually kind of like the drawings and the watercolors, but the the, the color is so uh, weightless and uh, uh, without uh, tangible feeling to it that, that I, I thought maybe that was part of the, the intention. Thank you for that question. And it's actually uh, John Goodrich, who's, who's going to be a panelist for us uh, on December the uh, 1st. So we get a, a, a preview of our next uh, review panel guest with that question um, or comment. We'll take others, though, and then absorb it into replies. Uh, Morgan, Taylor? Uh, I wonder if John's oh, um, observation about the color is related to my uh, feeling that the, there's something very, a very strong connection to illustration in this, in this work. Um, a weightlessness to the color, did you say? The, conne the, the, the connection to illustration for me is very strong, and right. I think that's why. We really are getting next month's review panel tonight, because that's actually Stephen Main, who's uh, going to be one of our other guests next month. Um, so illustration and intentional weightlessness of color. 
In other words, bad art, which there's no question in my mind, but, but bad with a capital B and in quote marks, not just art that isn't any good, but that art that belongs to that noble tradition of, of um, playing that da-da conceptual game of, of painting badly, but at the same time sort of doing it well. Is that David Farr? Is, that, uh, is, is she a bad artist in the best sense of I the think word? that's, sure, I think that's part of the interest. The subjects that are in this kind of borderline, or are they pay, and the color is on that same kind of borderline. In that sense, there's a wonderful kind of unity to her, her work. I think that's part of the challenge, because the colors, I mean, put them, you know, if you want to play this art historical game next to Fragonard or Boucher, and they're kind of this sort of yuckiness, and you say, well, I don't want these pinks and so forth, and that's, again, part of the fascination. I think that's what we're getting at. That's why she feels irritating. And, mm-hmm. But irritating can be good because, you know, it gives you something to chew on here and proceed. But don't we also want to put her next to Picabia and late Duran and say, you know, bad painting, intentional kind of uh, irritation and at the same time a kind of bizarre delectation, uh, you know, that yin-yang, that sort of balancing act between delectation and irritation is, is not something new to the 80s or 90s or today. But maybe then it's a feminist twist on that bad. I, mean, I, I, think, it's, I think if you walked into a Toys R Us store and went to the girls section, yeah. it's, uh, it's just there's a palette there that is, yeah. first I, of all, completely different than the boys' palette. And that's where this just seems completely drawn from to me. Me, me too. I was going to say, uh, I think uh-huh. she's working with a stereotype that yeah. needs to be addressed, you yeah. know, and that she's really making it so big and obvious that it becomes, you know, sort of vomitatious and hateful. And it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, anyone on that side? Oh, yes, the lady there, and then, then come over to this side of the room. Actually, it was interesting that you just brought that up because I was thinking along the same lines of the when you were a little girl and you grew up and you had all those post-its with like the dolls and so on. And then, you know, I mean, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed this time around um, from, from what, I haven't seen it in person, but from the slides, I'm a little bit disappointed, even if they're a little bit on a green-yellow side. But what I thought was interesting is, I mean, traditional women have been next to all the big masters, been the women who have been making the small paintings, right, in the Renaissance and the apples and the bananas, and, and that was their confined painting space. And in a way, I think it's interesting that she's now kind of putting it out there like the big pregnant woman. And there's still the apple, though. So that seems to be almost almost like this dialectic relationship between like the stereotypical like still life or what you would maybe consider the feminine fair traditionally. At the same time, you have this counteraction of like the the romantic of the childhood, the girl's childhood of this really pastel-y, kitschy sort of aspect. So there's kind of this duality, but at the same time, I see also it's not really a bad painting to be bad on purpose. And so it's the statement seems not to be completely clear where she's going. Yet it's, uh, I think it's intriguing where she, where she might want to push it to or you know, where it might come from. I, there's some, some kind of intrigue with that art historically. Okay, thank you. That's a very clear thought. Um, Susan, wait for the mic, please. Be a good president. Uh, well, to pick up where Martha uh, mentioned the baby doll toy section, the thing, the thing I find the most irritating about these paintings is that they are totally rubbery as human beings or as women. They have absolutely no inner core skeletal structure. 
I've always thought of them as liverwurst, but I think baby doll is better. So I've, I'm totally repulsed by the, the, um, the way she's presenting the women. But I can see, you know, that historically the whole breast-belly thing is completely provocative uh, and people, people buy it. Um, I think she hides a lot behind her painterly master quality techniques and I, I went to hear her speak and she actually refuses to get engaged in what her subject is. And um, so you're left, you're left to wonder. A lot of it, I think, is autobiographical, uh, but you, you know. Well, you we'll have to wait for the auto or the non-auto biography uh, to decide. Yeah. I guess maybe I'll put this as a question. Um, I was just thinking about Robert Colescott, who mm -hmm. did parodies of how he perceived white America regarded blacks. And I'm wondering if you feel there's an element of, in her work, of parody of how the world perceives women, and she's exaggerating that to make that a parody of a parody. So I'm asking if you, any of that was yes, perceived Martha, by you. Yes, Martha, do you accept I, I that think, um, maybe a little bit, but the one thing she has been forthcoming about is that, um, that there's a certain kind of um, embarrassment, that um, there's certain things about, you know, that she's sort of trying to face, you know, whether it's, you know, one's sort of admitting what, you know, what sort of things fascinate you. And so the fact that um, these are, uh, there are so many kind of embarrassing references there that, um, you know, whether it's to a kind of art you might, may have liked or what kind of art you grew up with. And I know that she said in the past that, you know, she grew up with this, um, I can't remember the name of the painter, but it's uh, like Boy Blue and, and um, Blinky, I think is the other one. Binky? Yeah, you know, these sort of kitsch, um, uh, you know, very sort of classically kitsch, um, uh, you know, works in her home, and so there's this way in which you're sort of confronting, um, you know, not only issues of sort of your own body and those kinds of things, but also the sort of sources that may have formed you. And so um, something that you said made me think about that. But oh, in terms of parroting, I, I don't, I don't think she is, you know. So um, I think that's what what makes this work sort of affecting is that you do realize there's a kind of vulnerability and, um, you know, that this is not an artist who's sort of doing the Sarah Morris thing where mm -hmm. you can just kind of put up a slick theoretical front that she's really put a, a lot of herself in there and um, you sort of sense this and, and it does make you uncomfortable, you know, it's like, uh, I know one of her earlier works um, you know, looks like a Rembrandt portrait, and uh, I can't remember the name of that one, but it's, a, it's basically a copy of an of a early Rembrandt portrait. And there is a sort of way in which, you know, not to sort of overdo it with the old masters, but the fact that Rembrandt really was so, um, you know, sort of kind of honest a lot of times in his depictions of himself. If, you know, he got older, 